we're spending uh, the month of May, we're looking at several parables of Jesus, and um, this one is definitely on the short end of parables. It's actually just two verses long, and, and so we're going to read the, the story as a whole because we want to understand the context, we want to understand the narrative that's happening here, but one of the things that, that well, sorry, I forgot, we need to start off with our, what we have on tap this week. So here's our tap this week. Our theology is this. Everyone needs God's gracious forgiveness. Everyone. There isn't a single person who is outside of a need for God's gracious forgiveness. Our application is great forgiveness stirs us up to great love. The application, great forgiveness stirs us up to great love. And here is our prayer for the week. God, give us eyes to see our great debt and your great forgiveness that we might offer you great love. Uh I've been a follower of Christ. I've been a Christian since I was a kid, and I find that every every time I come to see God more clearly, every time in my studies or just in a worship experience or hanging out with friends, where we've one of the things that Micah and Pierce and I talk about a lot is is how the three of us, our community with each other has grown us and shaped us to, to cause us to know God better and to enjoy God more fully. And every time I come to know God a little bit better, every time I come to know him a little more fully, I find that that in that is also a deeper love for him, that I don't love God less than I did when I first met him as a kid. I love him more. I enjoy him more fully. And part of that is because the better I come to understand who I am without God, the better I come to understand what God has done for me in sending Christ to die for me, the, the more celebration there is, the more cause for joy there is. And so this story that we're going to read today uh, is going to kind of highlight that for us. It's, if we have the correct view of who we are without God— that we are all in need of God's gracious forgiveness. If we have the correct view of what God has done for us in sending Christ to be a sacrifice for us, then, then we are able to have a better and more correct response to him in love. 1 John 4 keeps creeping into all of my sermons, but where, where it says in verse 18 or 19, where it says that we love because he loved us first, that, that our, our ability to love God or the capacity with which we have to love God well depends upon our understanding of how richly he's loved us. And so pick up with me, if you would, please, in Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, there was a woman of the city who is a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And wiping them with the hair of her head, she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is uh, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I want to pause there. So Jesus is invited to this, this uh, Pharisee's house. We were talking a little bit about the Pharisees last week, that they were against Christ, that they were the landowners who had not taken care of uh, what had been entrusted to them, the kingdom of heaven. And so here's this Pharisee. I'm not sure why he's having Jesus into his house, because he's clearly uh, judgmental, not only of Jesus, but of this woman. And I don't, I don't know. Uh, they were constantly trying to trap him, trick him. Who, who knows? We don't know what the motive was, but... Here's this Pharisee, has Jesus into his house, and there's a woman who the Bible says is a sinner, and she comes in, and she is anointing Jesus' feet, and she's wiping his feet, and she's kissing his feet, 
And the Pharisees thought, the Pharisees' inclination is, man, if this guy were really a prophet, if this guy were really something special, he would know what sort of woman is touching him, that this woman is a sinner. And so the Pharisees' perception of the woman is that she's a sinner. That's his perception, that she is that she is out of line, right? So that there's something about her. We don't know what it was. Uh, one of the, the, the Greek word kind of implies an immoral woman. So we don't know if it's a sexual sin or what, but something about this woman has, at least in the culture of the Pharisees, the, the religious elite made them view her as a sinner. And the Pharisee is put off that this sinner is touching Jesus's feet and Jesus doesn't seem to be aware of the kind of disgusting person that she is. And I want to point out a couple of other texts. Um, so in Luke 5, if you were just to flip back a couple of pages, in Luke 5, Jesus says this. I'm going to read just a couple of verses here, beginning in verse 30. Uh, and again, it's a, the Pharisees are there, right? These just, just so you should know, like in the biblical context, the Pharisees are not ever the good guys. They're just not. And so here in Luke 5.30, it says, The Pharisees and their scribes were grumbling at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Growing up uh, and having been in church my entire life, when, when people taught this text, uh, the way they taught it, so there, there's, there's, the, there's the sick and the healthy, there's the sinner and the righteous. So there are these two categories. And growing up when people taught this text to me, at least the way that I remember having heard it. So to be fair, I don't remember every sermon I was ever taught. And so maybe they taught it correctly, and this was just my interpretation. So let's not throw the preachers under the bus. Let's just say that I was a stupid hearer. And, and that what I heard growing up, what I understood growing up was the righteous and the well were in this category and the sinner and the sick were in this category and that the righteous and the well were Christians and that the sinner and the sick were non-Christians. That's how I heard it, right? Jesus didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but he came to call the sinners to repentance. He didn't come for the, those who were well. He came for those who were sick. And I always heard these two categories uh, righteous and well as, as, as being Christians, except for in this context, that's not what it means at all. If you and I are having a conversation and we use words like righteousness, we're talking about what Paul talks about in Romans, that we are righteous because of Christ. We're talking about the same things like in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become a sin offering on our behalf, that we would become the righteousness of God. Uh, we're, we, we talk about the righteousness that we have received because of faith. We talk about righteousness that comes through faith, Philippians chapter 2 talks about. And so that's what we mean when we talk about righteousness. It's important to remember that Jesus, a Jew, is talking to other Jews whose belief is that righteousness is through the law. Their belief is that righteousness is based on how good they're being or their behavior. And so the Pharisees of the day believed themselves righteous because they, they believed that their behavior was good enough. And, and so here's, what, here's the kicker. All the other people believed that the Pharisees were righteous too. If, if you're just strictly going by the action of it, if you're strictly going by the works of it and not by the content of the heart, then the Pharisees had a reason to pat themselves on the back and call themselves righteous. 
And the audience, the rest of the crowd, had a reason to believe that the Pharisees were righteous. But when Jesus says here, so here again, we have a group of Pharisees uh, really ticked off that Jesus and the disciples are eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they say, why would Jesus, why would your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus, knowing their heart, knowing what's being said, said, I didn't come for the righteous. Don't, don't hear Christian. That's not what Jesus means there. What Jesus means is I didn't come for those whose standard of righteousness is works. I didn't come for the self-righteous. I didn't come for those who believe themselves to be holy. I came for those who believe themselves to be sick. I came for those who know themselves to be sinners. And, and so... That's what's at stake here. That's what's being said here. And, and just to kind of put that in some better context, if you were to go over to Matthew chapter 9, let me read this to you. Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to begin in uh, verse 10. Matthew 9, 10. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, so this is the third time. We saw it in Luke 7. We saw it in Luke 5. We're seeing it now in, in Matthew 9. You have Jesus in the presence of sinners and tax collectors, and you have the Pharisees hating it, okay? This is a very common story in the New Testament. Jesus, full of grace, full of power, full of authority, full of deity, Jesus, fully God, showering love and compassion on the, the poor and the destitute and the disliked and the, the marginal people, and then the Pharisees complaining about it, that Jesus is showing love to these people, right? So again, verse 10, Jesus reclined at the table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. And when the Pharisees saw this, uh, they said to the disciples of Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So parallel text to Luke 5. But then listen to what Jesus adds. Listen to what Matthew records for us here. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinners. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So here, here's the idea. Sacrifice, uh, the sacrificial system, the Old Testament laws, sacrifice is a very key part of it, Right? Uh, if you've ever tried to read all the way through the Bible, you probably got bogged down a little bit in the first six chapters of Leviticus. I mean, it's tough. And it is outlining all the different types of sacrifices and offerings. And you're going, oh my goodness, this is so tedious. But there was something about the sacrificial system that was uh, very necessary for the Jew and part of their worship. It was part of their practice. But the sacrifices never made anybody righteous. The sacrifices never made anybody whole. The sacrifices never saved anybody. That was always through faith. That was always uh, through putting faith in, in the Savior that God would send and that we know now that he has sent in Jesus. And so Jesus says to these Pharisees, these self-righteous, uh, self-exalting Pharisees, he says to them, he goes, man, here's what I really want you to understand. I want you to understand the meaning of mercy rather than the meaning of sacrifice. So the Pharisees knew all the sacrificial system, but they didn't know mercy. They didn't know how to show mercy to the tax collector. They didn't know how to show mercy to the sinner. They didn't know how to show mercy to the immoral woman. And Jesus says he would rather them be merciful than adherence to the sacrificial system. And yet the Pharisees are walking around going, I'm righteous. Look, I hold to the sacrificial system. And Jesus goes, yeah, the problem isn't that you hold to the sacrificial system. The problem is there's no mercy. The problem is you have no compassion. The problem is you have no love. In fact, in a couple of chapters, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus and the disciples are going to be walking along on a Sabbath day. 
And if you're not familiar with what the Bible says about the Sabbath day, the Pharisees, so the Sabbath day was a day of rest. You weren't supposed to do any kind of work on it. And the Pharisees loved to pick on people for working on the Sabbath. And Jesus and the disciples are walking, I don't know, like in 2020, if, if we still had Pharisees around here in the United States, they would definitely all be on Facebook and they would be policing everybody's post. Right. Anytime somebody said something that they didn't like, I mean, they would be there to they would be uh, they wouldn't be messing probably with grammar. But anytime they, they were, I don't know, it's just I, I just wonder. Right. Here's Jesus and the disciples walking through a grain field. And of course, of course, the Pharisees are right there. Why? Not because they're interested in being part of what Jesus is going to do. Not because he's healing people or raising the dead. Not because he's feeding the multitudes. They're right there because what they want to do is find something to pick on him for and something to criticize him for. And because everything he did was about mercy and grace and everything they did was about the law, they found plenty to complain about. They found plenty to be upset about. And so here Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, if you can imagine, and they're hungry. They're peckish, right? And so they begin to, to harvest some of the grain, just pick some of the grain off the stalk and rub it between their hands and then eat it. And the Pharisees had been like waiting for this moment. And they begin to criticize. This is Matthew 12, if I didn't say that. They begin to criticize Jesus and his disciples for breaking the Sabbath. Oh, my goodness, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're harvesting grain on the day of rest. And then Jesus just turns to them. He's, he's so sick of them. He's just so tired of them. And, and he, says, he says of them in, in Matthew 12, he says, if you had learned what this meant, I want mercy, not sacrifice. Now, remember, he had said that to him a few days earlier, Matthew 9. He goes, if you had learned what this meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't be so quick to condemn the innocent. Okay, so think about it. The Pharisees aren't the ones who are innocent. The, the disciples picking grain on, on the Sabbath are the ones who are innocent. And Jesus said, if you had understood mercy rather than the sacrificial system, if you had understood mercy and compassion and grace rather than the law, you wouldn't be so quick to condemn the innocent. So now let's go back to, to Luke 7. Same situation that has happened dozens and dozens of times recorded for us in the scriptures and certainly hundreds of times that weren't recorded. Jesus is sitting down at dinner. Here's a Pharisee who probably, probably invited Jesus to dinner so that he could have another thing to criticize Jesus for. And here comes a woman who is known in the community as an immoral woman. And she anoints the feet of Jesus, and she washes the feet of Jesus, and she kisses the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisees' response isn't, wow, look at how gracious Jesus is, because the Pharisees weren't concerned with mercy, right? They were concerned with the sacrifice. They were concerned with the law. They were concerned with being self-righteous. They were concerned with calling themselves healthy and condemning everybody else as sick, condemning the innocent as sick. And so what happens is, here's this Pharisee, and he goes, man, if this guy condemning Jesus in his thoughts, if, if this guy, Jesus, were really a prophet, he would know that the kind of woman touching him right now is an immoral woman. And yet we know that Jesus knows the hearts of all people and knows their nature. And so listen to what Jesus says. Pick up with me again in Luke 7, verse 40, right? So the Pharisee has just said, if he, if he knows, if he was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this was. So Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, say it, teacher. And this is kind of Ryan's version. You've heard me say that from time to time. This is Ryan's version. I just wonder in this moment if this self-righteous, pompous, 
Pharisee, he just, he does not get it. He does not get that Jesus is God. He does not get that Jesus is Lord. And I, and I think when Jesus says, hey, Simon, I want to say something to you. I wonder if, if Simon is like in his arrogance, you know, with his chin kind of up and his chest puffed out. I was like, say it, teacher. Like, man, whatever you say to me, I'm going to knock it down. But I don't know. Uh, that's just how I picture I picture Simon very pompous. In, in my head, he's a cartoon, a caricature of, of a man. And here's Jesus's two-verse parable. Here it is. Here's the two-verse parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii was about a day's wage. So you've got a guy here who, owe, who owes like 20 months worth of money and another guy who owns a month and a half worth of money. When neither of them could pay, the money lender canceled both debts. Now, which one will love the money lender more? So that's the whole parable. That's the whole story. That's the whole anecdote that Jesus tells. Uh, there were two people who both had debts. One had a debt of a year and a half. One had a debt of a month and a half. The money lender canceled them both. Which one will love the money lender more? And then listen to what Simon says. Simon said, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. Okay, so listen. Everybody, everybody, including the self-righteous, arrogant Pharisee, everybody is in need of God's grace. That's the theology. Everybody is in need of God's gracious forgiveness. Everybody, okay? You'll notice that in the parable, both were debtors, okay? Both had debt. Both had a, a, an, a, an inability to pay back what they owed. That was true for both of them, Okay? And, and so everyone needs God's gracious forgiveness. But our application is great forgiveness stirs up great love. Good, great forgiveness stirs up great love. And so when, when you have two parties who both owe a debt and both debts are canceled, the one, and hear me say this, okay? So in the, in, in the factual or the, uh, the, the story, the parable here where there's two money two debtors to the moneylender, the one who is forgiven most loves most. The one who is forgiven most loves most. But what really we need to understand is that both were forgiven a debt that they couldn't pay. We need to understand that, that both were forgiven a debt they couldn't pay. So Jesus asked, which one will love more? Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged correctly. Now listen, here it is. Greater forgiveness or the, the, the understanding of, of forgiveness produces in us great love. Listen, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, when those who were sitting at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this that even can forgive sins? And he said to her, woman... Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, listen. In this parable, Jesus is very plain that both Simon and the woman are debtors to the moneylender. Both are in debt. The difference, the difference is one of them is aware of their great debt. The woman, she is aware of how great her debt is. And because she is aware of how great her debt is, and because she is aware of how merciful 
going back to Matthew 9, going back to Matthew 12, I, I wish that you understood what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. Because she understands how merciful God is and how abundant his forgiveness is, it has stirred up in her great love. She, she recognizes how much she's been forgiven, and because she recognizes how abundant the grace of God is, what it does then is it causes her to love abundantly. The end of Romans chapter 5 and the beginning of Romans chapter 6 says that we should understand that however great our sin is, wherever sin is magnified, grace is even more abundant. You and I need to know that no matter how abundant our sin is, that grace is overly abundant, that grace is weightier and bigger and can, can blanket all sin. And because that is true, it should stir up in us great love. But the problem here, notice what, notice what Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman I entered your house and you gave no water for my feet. What Jesus is saying, you didn't give me water for my feet. You gave me no kiss on the cheek. You didn't anoint my head with oil. He goes, he, all the things that Simon didn't do. Things that Simon would have done for any guest that he respected or that he had honor for. Right? Simon does not honor Jesus. Simon doesn't have any respect for Jesus. Why? Because Simon, Matthew 9, Matthew 12, uh, Luke 7, Luke 5, all of the places, and uh, in, in, in where were we last week? Matthew 21, all these places in the scriptures, Simon doesn't have any honor for Jesus because Simon believes himself to be righteous. Simon believes himself to be well. He doesn't need someone who will offer grace. At least that's Simon's perception. And because Simon doesn't understand his own debt, because Simon doesn't understand his own sinfulness, because Simon doesn't understand that he is in fact sick, because Simon doesn't understand that he has no reverence for Christ, the physician, the healer, the merciful, the benevolent, the savior, the redeemer, the forgiver. He has no, no respect or no honor for that because Simon doesn't believe he needs it. Hear me say this, please. If you are in our audience today or you're listening to it, uh, you're watching it later because of YouTube, if your perception is you don't need Jesus, you don't need a savior because you yourself are okay, please understand this, that until we come to the place where we recognize that apart from God, we are nothing. Until we come to the place where we recognize that we are all sinners, until we come to the place where we recognize that there is no one who is good, there is no one who seeks after God, there is no one, not one, who does righteousness. Until we come to that place where we recognize that, that we are destitute without Jesus, we will never reverence Jesus as we should. And, and so Simon has no reverence for Christ. And yet this sinner, culturally sinner, right, has great reverence for Christ. Why? Because she knows her own wickedness, and she knows the own depth of her depravity, and she knows that the mercy of this man, Jesus, is greater than her depravity, and greater than her sin, and greater than the distance that she has gone away from God. And because she knows that, because she knows that here is the King of glory, the King of kings, the King of all lords, the Savior of the universe, right? Because she knows that, she is able to having seen him correctly, love him well. The, the, I would like to point out that when Jesus says in Matthew 9, Matthew 12, uh, I didn't come for the righteous, I didn't come for the well, the, the well, I came for the sick, I came for the sinners. Jesus isn't saying that there is somebody who doesn't need him. Jesus is speaking to the thought and the inclinations of the heart of these individuals. There are people who think they don't need him. 
There are people who think themselves righteous. There are people who think themselves well. And they, they won't come to Jesus. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are destitute in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who, whose ego and pride and, and uh, self-esteem all rest on their own abilities, they're not bending the knee before Jesus. They're not coming to him with kisses. They're not coming to him with affection or thankfulness because they believe themselves sufficient. Three things that I want to address really quickly. So great forgiveness stirs up in us great love. Three things I want to address. When we have the wrong view of sin, okay, you'll notice that in all of these places, I only mentioned four. So Luke 7, Luke 5, Matthew 9, Matthew 12. You'll notice that in all of these places, what the Pharisees are using as a standard for righteousness is their behavior, their action. And that's not the standard for Jesus. Jesus is using the heart as the standard. When... When we make our actions the standard for sin, so I grew up in a, um, in a home where Christ was taught to me at an early age. I grew up going to church. I was always part of church. I went to like church camp every summer from second grade on as, as soon as I was old enough to go. Uh, I've traveled and preached. I've done all these things. And so some people have said of me and will continue to say of me, and that's fine, that I am a follower of Christ because of the system I grew up in, Right. And so some people will say that I'm just the product of, of my upbringing. And certainly I suppose that all of us in one shape or another are products of our upbringing. But there comes a point when, and for me, this was really when I was about 19 or 20, there comes a point when we have to decide, am I following these things because of the upbringing I have, or am I following these things because God is who he says he is, because Jesus is really the Savior. And, and so... Some of us in, in the world, right? Oh, and by the way, I, God is really who he says he is, and Jesus really is the Savior. And you couldn't push me off of that, and you couldn't change my mind, and you could strip everything from me, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't shift that view a bit because truth is truth, whether we like it or not, whether we hold to it or not. But the view of sin, a lot for me growing up, the view of sin, what made somebody a sinner, what made somebody good was behavior. And so I grew up very arrogant. I grew up in a, in a very um, kind of legalistic system where I decided if the kids at school were good or bad, not based on what they said about Jesus, but based on what they did on Friday night. If, if a kid did, you know, if a kid went to a Bible study on Friday night, they're a good kid. If a kid went to a party on Friday night, they're a bad kid. That was my estimation, and that is, that is the wrong estimation, okay? That's the wrong standard. So if our view is, uh, of sin is what we do rather than who we are in our hearts, there's going to be a lot of us who go, man, I'm a pretty good person. I'm nice to people. I'm benevolent. I help people out. I always wear my mask when I go out in public or, you know, I stay six feet away, like all these new things, all these new rules that we have now, right? Uh, I carry hand sanitizer. Um, I didn't overstock on the toilet paper like everybody else. Like, it, it's funny, right? Like, there's this whole new list of rules that have come up because of coronavirus on how we're supposed to behave. And if our view is I'm doing all the right rules, I'm doing all the right things, then chances are we aren't going to find ourselves in need of a Savior. 
then chances are we're going to be like the Pharisees who go, I'm righteous, I'm well. If we're basing it off of our own conduct, chances are we're going to be very self-satisfied, or at least many of us will be. But if we base it off the heart, if we base it off of the scope of eternity, if we base it off of the truth of who God is, that God is holy, that God is righteous, that God is good, and that I am nothing like God, God is good, God is true, God is holy, God is righteous, and I am nothing like God. If we base it off of that, who we are at the heart, who we are at the core, then every one of us sees the the gap. Every one of us sees the lack. Every one of us sees the dearth in our performance that just says, man, we... We need something to bridge this between us and Christ. If we're basing it, listen, I was a good kid, made good grades, always did what my parents told me to do. Uh, I obeyed all the rules. I loved rules, like give me more rules. I was going to follow them. From every cultural standard, I was a good kid. That doesn't make me righteous. That doesn't make me worthy of God or okay or well. I was still sick, and until I came to the place where I recognized that it was my heart, my character, who I am without God, that God is everything I cannot be, at that point, then I began to realize how low I was and how small I was. And so if you're walking through life and you're, you're hoping uh, and you have this kind of inner dialogue, and you say, well, I don't know if there's a God or not, but if there is, if this is your kind of inner discussion, I don't know if there's a God or not, but if there is, I'm pretty good, then you do not yet understand the measure of God, and you do not yet understand the measure of sin, because the Bible is clear that apart from God, none of us are good. It doesn't matter how many actions we stack up or how many times we're benevolent or how many tires we change in the rain for little old ladies or how many groceries we've bought for the hungry or or whatever. It doesn't matter. Those things, the actions aren't what make us good. Faith in Jesus is what makes us good. Righteousness is what makes us good. And apart from that, we are destitute. And so the, the Pharisees in the scripture had a wrong view of sin. They believed themselves to be good because of their actions. They didn't view themselves as sinners. They didn't view themselves as far from God. So so a wrong view of sin keeps us from loving Jesus well. The second thing is very closely related to it, so I shouldn't have to spend a lot of time on it. A wrong view of righteousness keeps us separated from God. If we believe on any level, um, well, let me not say it that way. Let me say it this way. If we believe that our righteousness is determined by our behavior, then we have misunderstood righteousness. Because righteousness is determined by Jesus, by what he has done, by what he has accomplished. Righteousness is a matter of faith by saying, I put my faith in Jesus who alone is righteous, who alone is good. And, and so that my righteous understanding, and in other words, when we're talking about wrong views of sin or righteousness, if your view of sinfulness is based on what you've done or your view of righteousness is based on what you've done, then we've misunderstood the point. Because sin is about not knowing God, okay? Uh, we are sinners because we are far from God. That's the, that is it. That's who we are. And we are righteous because we are in God. That's it. That's what makes the difference. Not my behavior, not my, not my conduct, not, not my social status. What makes the difference is what we know and believe about God. I am a sinner 
because that's who I am apart from God. I am righteous because that's who I am in God. And if we have a wrong view, if we have a view about it that rests on us, we will never love God like we should love him. And, and this is why the Pharisees struggled and never came to a love for Jesus. There were one, there was one that we know did in the scripture. But, and then eventually, Paul, who was a Pharisee, became like the, one of the biggest preachers, the best preachers in the New Testament and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He was a Pharisee. But the reason that the Pharisees had a difficult time in coming to a love for Jesus is because they had a really easy time in praising themselves and valuing themselves. And because they valued themselves wrongly, they never valued Jesus rightly. <laughs> Does that make sense? So they, they, they valued righteousness based on what they did. They valued, uh, they, they valued themselves as people who weren't sinners because of the things they weren't doing, and they missed Jesus. And so if we have a wrong view of sin, if we have a wrong view of righteousness, then, then we will have a poor view of the love of God. And then thirdly, if we have a wrong view of forgiveness, okay, if we misunderstand forgiveness, that forgiveness, forgiveness, that uh, the forgiveness of Jesus, the forgiveness of God that he lavishes upon us is complete, is all-encompassing. Because I know people still who come to faith in Christ, they say, look, I get it. I have a debt. I'm a sinner. I get it. I'm not righteous without Jesus. And, and, and I need to put my faith in Jesus. And they'll still struggle with this third one. And they'll still feel like every day they're, they're just a little bit unforgiven still. Uh, they feel like every day they have to try just a little bit harder to earn this forgiveness, which is, which is false, which is a lie. Like the forgiveness, the, the, the mercy, the compassion, the grace that Jesus lavishes upon us is complete. It is complete. It is, it is whole. We are no longer, listen, I, I hear Christians frequently say something like, man, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I need us to comprehend that we are not just sinners saved by grace, that once we are in Christ, we are called righteous, we are called beloved, we are called holy, we are called chosen, we are called adopted. Uh, we are saints, okay? God doesn't view us as Christians. He doesn't view us as people who, uh, you know, like you still need a little bit. Like we're forgiven wholly, completely, totally. And this woman... In Luke 7, this woman gets it. She understands the, the repugnance of her and the depravity of her sin. She understands that she has a debt, right? And she understands that God has given her grace, given her righteousness out of his mercy. And she's understa understood the depth of the forgiveness that has been offered to her. And the result of that is great love for Jesus. If it is our belief that our righteousness and our lack of sin hinges upon our ability, then there's at least a little bit of a degree, a little bit, just a, just a tiny bit at least, where we're going, yeah, thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. But this one I got. But this one I, I have covered. Until we come to the place where we understand that everything we are apart from Jesus is depravity and everything we are in Jesus is righteousness and that his forgiveness is transcendent over all of our errors, over all of our mistakes, Romans 8.1, there is now therefore zero, none, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Until we come to the place where we comprehend that, our love for Jesus will be weak at best. And if you're somebody who has never named the name of Jesus as a Savior, if your belief system is such that you believe your righteousness and your goodness all depends upon you, 
then it will be very difficult to become a, to come to a place where you're a lover of Jesus. Until we know that we have debt, until we know that we are in need of his gracious forgiveness, how can we love him for that? How can we worship him for that? How can we praise him for that? How do we honor him for his grace and his forgiveness and his compassion if we don't believe we need it? Uh, man, 41 years. I've been a Christian 23 years. I've been a full-time preacher. And I am still praying. My prayer is still that God would remind me who I was without him. That God would show me how fantastic his grace and his forgiveness is. And that it would stir up in me more love for him. Still. That is still the cry of my heart. Because I am finite, but God is infinite. And while I understand his love and his grace and his compassion for me better today than I did 20 years ago, I have to believe that I've still just barely scratched the surface. That I've barely comprehended how far removed I was from him. That I have barely comprehended how deeply he and holistically he's rescued me. And I just want to love him more. I want to understand better the debt that I was under, the grace that was lavished upon me, so that I might love him more completely today than I did yesterday. Right? Few, very few of these Pharisees ever came to know Jesus. Because their determination for what was good and what was righteous was all about themselves. Here's what I want us to do for the next couple of minutes. I just want us to spend some time in prayer. And here's our prayer. God, give us eyes to see our great debt and your great forgiveness that we might offer you great love. Give us eyes to see our great debt and your great forgiveness that we might offer you great love. If we have to pick, right? Everybody's in debt. Everybody's in need of the forgiveness of God. If we have to pick in this story between the Pharisee and the woman, man, we want to be the woman. We, we want to be the one who is able to worship the Savior, who's able to understand the great depths of our depravity, the overwhelming nature of his forgiveness so that we might lavish on him love. Would you just take a moment and just ask God to bring us, bring you and your family to that place?
God, we know that apart from you, there is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous. No one does good, not even one. We know that our need for a Savior is way deeper than we've ever comprehended, but we ask that you would help us to understand it. Help us to understand how high and holy you are and how low we were. And help us to think rightly, Lord God, on your grace and your forgiveness. Help us to think rightly on having been rescued from the pit, having been ransomed from death, having been loosed from the chains of sin. Help us to think rightly on those things. Help us to think rightly on the mercy that you've lavished upon us. Help us to think rightly uh, on freedom from condemnation. Help us to, to think rightly on the holiness and the righteousness that has been lavished upon us on your behalf. And then God, use that in us to stir up a deeper love for you. To delight in you more fully and more richly. God, may our lives be an example to the world of what it is to know. It's in your name we pray.